X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, October 8th. Today, back in the day, October 8th, 1871, the beginning of the Peshtigo fires in Michigan and Chicago. Throughout the mid-1800s, big logging turned parts of the upper Midwest into a tinderbox of debris and dry wood. Sound familiar? In 1871, gale force winds and a summer drought turned smaller land-clearing fires into three historic fire storms. In northeastern Wisconsin, the Peshtigo Fire consumed 1.2 million acres, killed somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 people. To this day, it is the deadliest wildfire in recorded history. In Michigan, fires consumed over 2.5 million acres, but the abundance of traveling salespeople and lumberjacks made it hard to estimate how many people died. And the winds that fanned those two blazes also spread the Great Chicago Fire, which may have been started in the O'Leary family's small barn on Decoven Street. At the time, over two-thirds of Chicago's buildings were made mostly of wood. Strong, superheated wind allowed the fire to jump the Chicago River, leading it to the heart of the city. Once the fires ended, it took several days for the ground to cool enough for people to survey the damage. In all, about four square miles of the city were destroyed. That included 1,750 buildings and $220 million in property. That was 150 years ago. That's a lot of money. Death toll may have been as high as 300. Only 120 bodies were recovered. And 90,000 Chicago residents were left without homes. And in 1956, Chicago built the Chicago Fire Academy on Decoven Street, in that same spot where the fires may have begun. And today, back in the day, October 8th, 1985, the great bronze woman known as Portlandia was dedicated. To get Portlandia into place, the six and a quarter ton statue was first floated up the Willamette River on a barge. Thousands of Portlanders gathered to watch it crawl down the street. Obviously, she had help. She's always been that shape. She didn't like crawl down the street and then get into the crouch. She was like wheeled down, sort of. Before arriving at her final destination in front of the Portland building, the almost 35-foot-tall statue of woman holding a trident is based on Portland's city seal. It is the nation's second-largest hammer-copper statue, the first Statue of Liberty. Portland's creator Ray Caskey said of Portland's free artistic spirit, I've never seen anything like this. It's a religious experience. Since its dedication, Portlandia hasn't become the icon of the city that some expected. This is partially due, by the way, to Portland's unique rights for artists. Those rules allow the artists of public works to retain the rights to those works. Caskey has retained his rights to Portlandia. As a result, the statue is rarely featured on postcards or other media. For example, in 2012, Laurelwood Brewing used a depiction of the statue on a label for their beer. They later reached a settlement with Caskey. Speaking about the negotiations, Caskey said, it's called capitalism. Today, we'll start with the Quick 6 News headlines. We'll have an interview with Rima Gondor, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Judge. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Portland Public Schools announced it will extend its distance learning through January 28th. Guadalupe Guerrero, the district superintendent, said that before teachers and students can return to in-person instruction, the following health authority mandated criteria must be met got to be at or below a 5% COVID-19 positivity rate for three consecutive weeks, and county cases have to drop below 10 per 100,000 residents per week again for three consecutive weeks. Note that the increase in testing might, of course, increase case counts. Governor Kate Brown is planning to meet with state health officials in the coming weeks to assess those metrics. 305 new cases, two additional deaths. State's death toll now at 584, case total now 35,435. 
And the University of Oregon is struggling with the alarming surge in COVID-19 cases as Oregon's largest university is reopening. As we reported, Lane County has seen a big rise in new COVID-19 cases and the apparent cause, sure enough, parties. Upon reopening, U of O has asked students to sign a behavioral pledge, but the pledge doesn't list any specific punishments for violators. Also, by the way, in university, nobody under the drinking age drinks. It's an amazing thing. University also isn't regularly testing any students, with the exception of athletes, likely due to cost. The state epidemiologist said last month that an OSU Greek row party had sparked outbreaks. OSU spokesman Steve Clark said the university had prepared for reopening by instituting safety protocols. He told Oregon Live, this was fully anticipated and part of our overall strategy. OSU is only one of the Oregon's three largest universities testing their sewage for elevated COVID-19 levels through their TRACE program. Researchers are monitoring wastewater from student dorms, sororities, and fraternities in an effort to detect the virus early. One thing they won't detect is any alcohol in that sewage, particularly from the people under the age of 21. The Brew Doctor, Portland Kombucha Masters, are going to close their Oregon tea shops. The cafe chain, originally named Townsend's Tea, but rebranded to The Brew Doctor last year, opened its first location in Northeast Alberta Street in 2006, right down the road from the X-Ray Studios. They offered a wide variety of tea, boba, and chai. Gotta love the boba. After two years of their reopening, Brew Doctor, maybe it's The Brew Doctor, but they say that MLS isn't the MLS, so what do I know? They added kombucha, not the MLS or MLS, but the Brew Doctor or just Brew Doctor. The Brew Doctor or just Brew Doctor added kombucha to the menu and quickly became the company's signature drink. Their founder, Matt Thomas, told the Portland Business Journal that while kombucha sales have climbed during the pandemic, the tea houses no longer viable. Cafes on Southeast Division and North Mississippi Avenue have already closed. Their remaining locations will close by October 18th. An unlawful assembly was declared outside the Portland Ice Building on Tuesday night. Six people were arrested outside Portland's Ice Building on South McAdam Avenue. Within minutes of arriving, protests began blocking off traffic on South Bancroft Street. Some people were seen shining lights into the eyes of the federal protection officers who were standing outside the building. Just before 11 p.m., the police bureau reported that someone in the group threw some sort of explosive on the roof. Portland police attempted to clear the crowd as several members of the group threw rocks at them. When things started to get really rowdy, the federal officers emerged from inside the ICE building to push back the crowd. After spending 30 minutes moving the group back towards Elizabeth Carruthers Park, the federal officers returned to the ICE building. The crowd reassembled, began blocking traffic once again. At 11.20, police declared the gathering an unlawful assembly and then rushed the crowd in an attempt to disperse them. And once arrests were made, the crowd began to dissipate. An overnight fire sparked at a Beaverton storage facility. Tualatin Valley Fire and Rescue, otherwise known as TV Fire and Rescue, which I thought was like the television program Emergency, responded to a reported fire at a storage facility off Northwest Twin Oaks Drive and Northwest Cornell Road around 12.30 in the morning on Wednesday. The fire was in control within an hour, but several storage units were badly damaged. An investigation has been launched into the cause of the blaze. No injuries have been reported. Some good news. A Vancouver nonprofit is lending a helping hand to local restaurants in the Portland area. The nonprofit Northwest Wine and Food Society has launched a new program called Restaurant Reboot that offers support for small restaurant owners to help them survive the pandemic. They've raised about 15 grand that will be used towards awarding multiple grants to local restaurants. Their treasurer, Julie Olson, said that grant recipients are nominated and decided by the community through a voting process. For the time being, Northwest Wine and Food Society have halted nominations but are continuing to raise funds for the next round of grants. Matt is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-Ray.
There's an open judges seat on the November ballot in Multnomah County, and one of the candidates running for the seat is Rima Gondor. Rima is a lawyer, activist, and leader of color who immigrated to the United States at the age of 18. Here she is discussing her background and qualifications with Jefferson Smith. You can find this and all of our candidate interviews on xraypod.com and on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Rima is our 103rd candidate interview. Again, all of our candidate interviews are on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. There you'll find both candidate interviews as well as information on ballot measures. Rima Gondor immigrated to the United States at the age of 18 after experiencing life in several countries where the legal system benefited the rich and powerful primarily. Ms. Gondor is a licensed lawyer in four states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and California, earned a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from Colgate in New York and a JD from the University of San Diego. Ms. Gondor is in a runoff with Adrian Brown for the Multnomah County judge seat in the Oregon elections coming up in a ballot near you. Ms. Gondor, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. How are you? You know, I am grateful. I am. It is easy to slip into anger. It is easily to, easy to slip into even sadness. Uh, but at this moment, how I am feeling is grateful, and I am grateful to be talking to you. And I know our listeners are as well. Why remind people why you want to be a judge? Well, I actually growing up did not think I would ever want to be a judge. Um, what got me motivated to put my name in for a judge was after I worked uh, uh, helping people at the airport with the Muslim ban um, and talking and continuing to talk with different communities and feeling the fear um, and hearing it and listening to it uh, that the judicial system is not going to be there to protect people, um, that people feel they can't bring cases to the court because they feel they're not going to get a fair shake based on biases and prejudices. Um, that's when I sort of sat down, looked at my life, looked at what I did, and I was like, you know what, I can change, I can do something different but help people in a different way than I have been before and decided to run for a judge. How does a seat as a judge impact access to justice in the legal system? Connect those dots. So if you have a judge um, that doesn't acknowledge their base, their biases and their prejudices, and they um, sit in court and make decisions, um, without those acknowledgements, those um, insights, and then um, their decisions are going to be tainted. If uh, you have a judge that does not understand um, language difficulties uh, for people, does not understand how difficult it is uh, for people from marginalized communities to actually feel trust enough to come and appear into the courtroom, uh, those also could influence what uh, is going on. it's important for a judge to know that that you know that we have so many pro se or self-represented parties in court uh, because access to uh, funding. If you're a criminal um, defendant and you are low income, you may get an um, attorney assigned to you. If you have any civil matter uh, that you need to bring, um, it's very hard to get 
uh, pro bono or low bono help in court. So there's also a lot of people who are going to be appearing that need some hand-holding, some understanding of where they're coming from. Washington Post had a story a few years ago that did discover uh, racial bias in the criminal justice system. Uh, the judiciary is more white and male than the population of the United States. I, I do wonder, and so, and a given judge can matter, but I've wrestled with this, heck, I've wrestled with this ever since I was uh, in law school, ever since I clerked for a federal judge. And that was, if one wants to make change in the legal system, where do you go? Do you do it as a lawyer and try to file suits? Do you do it as a legislator and try to pass laws? Do you do it as an activist and try to change the landscape where the laws might get enacted? Or do you work in media and try to change the landscape in a big picture where activists and lawmakers and lawyers uh, end up toiling? Where do you think that kind of work ends and the judiciary begins? And is there a risk that in trying to engage in the improvement of the delivery of the practice and delivery of laws and justice, that one is in fact stepping away from being a member of the judiciary and toward the realm of being an activist? Or is that a false line? So you're right, there are many, many different ways to bring change, right? From filing lawsuits, from uh, trying to change it from the outside. Um, it, let me give you an example of what a judge can do. Um, you know, you are you will be within the system, right? And you are, as you said, limited in what you can do uh, ethically by the judicial canons. But having a judge um, that has lived experience, so they can look at issues and procedure. I mean, procedure is a big thing in the court. Uh, procedures and looking at them and saying, wait a minute, why are we doing this this way? This is, you know, it might be neutral on its face, but it's actually not. Uh, this is preventing people from being able to come in and um, participate in our judicial system. Um, and I'm going to throw you an example of a, a very simple thing. I, um, through the Muslim Bar Association, I was president. There was an issue with one of our legal members actually not being able to access one of the buildings um, because she was in a wheelchair and the sheriffs wanted her to, you know, move her legs and do different things in the search uh, that she can't do. And she was able to get in because she knew the judges and was able to call the presiding. This was not Muslim County, but it got me motivated to start a committee with Muslim County uh, Courthouse to explore issues of access. And one of the things I was able to look at, because um, I do care so deeply about this issue, is there was a voter pamphlet that, uh, I mean, sorry, not a voter pamphlet, um, summons, a jury summons that came in for my mother. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, there is nowhere there that talks about how you access the building or how do you, you ask for help if you need any kind of accommodation. So bringing that up, looking at it, we were able to change what the jury summons looks like without a lot of cost. This is, I mean, this is a teeny thing, but it's just one way that a judge or somebody in inside the system can sit and look and be like, why are we doing this? Let us fix it. Let us make it more accessible. Let us make it more equitable. And I know you're, um, you know, there's always a risk, right? But I think that the judge would become more of an activist. But I don't think that's a valid risk when the judge is working to make sure that there is access to the courts, 
that there is equity in the courts because you can't have justice without equity. What are the biggest changes you think we need to make to our justice system? Oh, um, I think bail needs to be looked at very closely. Uh, I think minimum sentencing uh, needs to look at, look, be looked at very closely. I think uh, not just in Multnomah County, but in other counties, um, representation on the court and who is bringing the, the you know, who are the judges making decisions and the different perspectives they can bring to their decision making um, needs to change. Have you seen the new courthouse? I, you know, I haven't seen it in its finished process. As I said, I was the president of the Multnomah Bar Association, and I did have the privilege to go in uh, during construction a couple times. It is um, lovely. It is safe. Um, and also, I actually was able to write a piece on the beam, um, the corner beam that was put up on the top during the the topping ceremony. Were so, you invited to do I'm that, very, or just it was just you graffitied it? You just so nobody was looking, and you just used your pen. <laughs> I, no, I was invited okay. to that. So my name and the word peace in Arabic is written um, on the corner on the top. And uh, I'm just excited that actually the most the prettiest part of the uh, courthouse is what is public. What is the public going to be uh, seeing and using with the amazing views of our city? How do you make yourself and technology? <laughs> yeah, and, and just for people, technology in the courthouse. Yeah, yeah the the old the old courthouse didn't have a lot of plugs, not a lot of places to plug in a laptop, much less you know other technology. But yeah, the well, new. It, Go ahead. It was bad. I mean, you had trial and you had to get your uh, duct tape with you in duct tape um, um, cords all over to make sure your computer and your old fashioned projector work and all of that. So that's it's a very exciting thing for practitioners. I think it'll also make access easier and visually make uh, trials uh, much better. Yeah, so just for people who've missed the story, the new Multnomah County Central Courthouse uh, is opening this week, opening on Monday uh, at the west end of the Hawthorne Bridge. Decades of lobbying for funds, years of construction. Yeah, Offer other thoughts about the view. I mean, people have probably been to the courthouse, right? Pay a parking ticket, maybe to have a trial. Certainly our listeners who are lawyers and, and paralegals, et cetera, have been there. But give people a window. I mean, I heck, I remember it from high school, from mock trial years ago at Grant High School. But yeah, give people a window, an additional window into the transition from the old courthouse to this new courthouse. So... Um you know, one of the things that has been going on over the last few years is uh, we've transferred from like paper filing to electronic filing, which uh, makes it much easier, much cleaner uh, for the environment and also lessens the amount of storage that the courthouse has to use. So, you know, we've been moving towards better technology uh, since then. Now the old courthouse is gorgeous. It was built gorgeous, but there's been updates and it's definitely just, uh, will not uh, survive an earthquake, which is a problem because you have so many people, so many of our community in the courthouse on a day-to-day basis. Um, In the old courthouse, you walk in, you know, you've got, uh, there's a long line you see in downtown outside uh, waiting to go into the courthouse, uh, you know, through security. And then if you have a question, um, the, the only chaos there is the sheriff's office. That's where you get to ask questions of where to go. Uh, the difference in the new courthouse, it's all sheltered space to get into the courthouse. Uh, there are more security 
areas and then through the Multnomah Bar Association and donations from the legal community. Uh, there will now be a person at the kiosk that is not a sheriff's uh, deputy that can direct people to where to go, um, which is a great thing. And another big thing is there is going to be an area with resources, videos, uh, uh, and uh, research ability for the public to be able to use uh, with videos that the Oregon State Bar and the Multnomah Bar Association are preparing. Like if you have a landlord-tenant case and you don't have an attorney, we talked about that earlier, what, what do you expect? What should you be doing? Um, so those are all ways to make things easier. Uh, in the old courthouse, when you had a trial or a hearing and you had your client there, um, you basically had to find a corner in the hallway and hope it's private enough and whisper in there. The new courthouse has actually areas for people to meet uh, with their attorneys, with their clients, mm -hmm. and have some mm -hmm. privacy with that. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the differences that you will see when you walk in um, to the new courthouse. Rima Gondor is a candidate for judge. These races aren't always contested. Very often people fill out their ballots and, you know, you get to the judge and it's like, well, who am I going to vote for? The person who's listed or one of these fill in the blanks then make up some name and vote or not vote at all in that portion of the ballot. This is a contested race. One thing you talked about access to justice occurs to me that one of the challenges with access to justice is it can take a long time to get your case heard. It can get long, take a long time to get your case tried. And that doesn't even count how much you got to pay a lawyer. What do you think are the most innovative things happening or that need to happen in order for people to be able to get disputes adjudicated more quickly without sacrificing real justice, but make sure it costs a little bit less so actually more decisions can be made by judges and juries? Yeah, some of the things that are, people are looking at, I mean, uh, most of my county and other counties have tried a six-person jury. Uh, they call it the expedited trial so that you can uh, get your case done uh, quicker with less people and there's timelines on that. I don't think that's been taken advantage of as much as people want. Um, I think increasing mediation um, services, free mediation services, um, and ability of judges to, you know, more hopefully more judges one day, uh, ability to do that might help get the case resolved. And the other thing is, um, you know, we talked about the right to counsel in criminal cases. I think it might be, well, getting more funding to organizations like Eagle, uh, Legal Aid and increasing the threshold of uh, when you qualify for those services will help more people get attorneys. Um, and yes, the length of time it takes to try uh, or get your case through is not great. And unfortunately, it's only going to get worse while we deal with COVID and catching up from the time. Well, we still, I don't think, have in Multnomah County had a civil trial. Uh, yeah, not a lot of trials are happening right now, right? Not not a lot. Uh, the trials that are happening that are, I mean, some bench trials are happening. That Those are trials that you don't have to have juries in, so social distancing is easier. It's just the judge and the parties and the witnesses. And there are criminal cases of, uh, that uh, constitutionally have to go to trial, uh, and those some of them have gone. Those have gone if they were not, um, if the defendant didn't agree to postpone. But civil trials in Multnomah County, I don't believe 
any jury trials has gone out. So there's going to be a backlog. As a practitioner, I see it. It makes case, it makes cases harder to settle. It makes cases, um, you know, more expensive as you're waiting and waiting because, um, you know, your client who's injured or your client who has a business dispute can't get a resolution. Right now, we are in the midst of uh, an awakening, a reawakening around racial justice, also in the midst of a heated debate about the role of law enforcement and community safety. Uh, How do you think through that? And this brings up issues of Measure 11. It brings up issues of the district attorney deciding what to charge. It brings up issues of federalization of local local officers brings up so many issues and you of course read the newspaper watch tv might even have a social media handle how do you either allow that information to filter into your brain or how do you block it out how do you try to be aware of your own bias or even shape that bias okay so i do think it is important not to block information out um you know this is uh this is a judge's community. This is their constituents. This is who they serve. So it is important to know what is going on in your city, in your county, uh, what people are going through in listening to them. It is important to be out in the community and uh, listen to know what is going on because one, you know, you're going to have to make a decision at some point that might affect these communities. And if you don't know how your decision is going to affect people, how, uh, what it means if you put a father, um, if you do bail for a low level crime that is too high for a person to meet and they're, you know, a father who has a job and is on the brink of potentially losing their housing. Um, I don't think you are serving justice. It's important to listen to all sides. It's important to listen to everybody from the community. Um, so, I don't want to filter. If somebody wants to tell me something, I want to hear it, right? And I take it in and I, you know, that's just part of who, you know, the lived experience. Um, our city is going through some, in our county, some really difficult times. And, you know, I, a little bit of my background is I grew up under authority, you know, an authority, well, Authoritarian state, yeah. <laughs> Um, I grew up in war. I grew up with militias that uh, arm themselves and go around and uh, stop people. Um, I grew up in civil war, you know, in both countries where really um, justice is just a word, right? So those are all the lived experiences I will be bringing with me, and I can't put them aside. Uh, One thing I've learned through a lot of training and listening to people is it, you know, we all have prejudices. I don't care who it is. Um, I can tell you within my, you know, the Arab community, we all, we also have prejudice. You, you just have to realize that and acknowledge it and sit when you make a decision, you go, am I doing this because X, Y, and Z, or this fear I have, or am I making it based on the facts and the evidence in front of me? And, and that's how you deal with it. How do you handle conflicts of interest on the bench? Are those things that come up, you anticipate coming up frequently, or is that a pretty rare occurrence? 
I, I think when a judge is newer, there's going to be more conflict of interest, right? There's going to be cases they've been working on um, that maybe come up. So obviously they have to recuse themselves. Um, attorneys always have the ability to file a motion to recuse a judge because they believe they can't be fair and impartial. Um, you, and usually the judge themselves, if there's a case they know somebody in the case or um, something like that, they will make sure, you know, they will recuse themselves. But So there are methods and ways to do it. And uh, the further the judge is from uh, practicing uh, law and being a judge, the less at least case conflicts will come up. What qual- As you think about why people should vote for you, in addition to your lived experience, which I don't want to diminish, in addition to your law degree, which we mentioned, why should people vote for you? Well, um, several things. I, I'm the only candidate in this race who has practiced in state court and practiced in Multnomah County. Um, I'm the only candidate in this race who... Um, has worked for you know different entities, different people, all sides of uh, the law, not just for the government. I'm um, the only candidate in this race who is a business owner and have owned my own business for the last eight years, and that's important because you know part of um, being a judge and being in a court is is it's, uh, is some you know it's administrative and it is with the budget cuts uh, doing more with less, and that's something that. As a small woman certified law firm, I do every day. (laughs) Um, And the other one is I've been working and volunteering with different communities in Multnomah County for years, not when I decided that I think I should be a judge, but from as soon as I moved, you know, as soon as I moved to Oregon uh, with my kid and my husband, uh, have been doing volunteering, whether legal or community-based, uh, started the Arab American Cultural Center, have been president of the Queen's Bench, which is a woman lawyer's organization, the Multnomah Bar organization, and part of that work was to bring in uh, different perspectives, different ideas, and um, share who we are as a, as a community and get judges and other attorneys to listen to topics that are not normally not discussed. Well, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time with us. Any question I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, no, I think you did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the note of praise. Where can people find out more? Of course, Rima good morning. Monday morning, you got to have praise to start your week. <laughs> Where can people find out more about your candidacy for Multnomah County Judge? Of course. Uh, www.rima4judge.com or my social handle on social media is rima4judge. Um, you can uh, find more information about me, my background, my experience, um, and uh, what I've done in my legal career. i got to throw in one more. If we can squeeze it in, in a minute, it'd be great. What do you see as alternatives to incarceration for people experiencing homelessness? There is right now so much... Police and fire have to deal with so many challenges that don't relate to a gun or a fire hose. How do you think that through as a judge? So, you know, there are a lot of crimes uh, and people who get convicted of crimes that are the result of them being homeless. 
I mean, that's sort of the crime. It's like you. And are I apologize. I'm only giving you about forty. Fault. I've only given you about forty seconds. They're about to cut us off. So yeah, the, do your best. So, um, I have, you know, we need more funding. We need more uh, community-based, uh, culturally appropriate uh, shelters, but not just shelters. Housing in the future, because again, so many people get caught in the legal system because of their houseless status. Uh, and we need to stop that pipeline. I appreciate it so much. 40 seconds. It was great. It was great. As I think about it, also this week we are uh, reporting the opening of the new shelter at the former Wapato jail site. And then this discussion of trying to pivot resources from traditional incarceration to human service what an interesting example. Rima Gondor, thank you so much for spending that time with us this morning. Thank you so much, and you have a great morning. Likewise. X-Ray. Thanks to Rima for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.